Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, I want to extend a welcome to you. Uh, my name is Randy, and I'm privileged to be the lead, lead minister here at the church. And um, so Windsor Road Christian Church is a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ. Jesus is the most important person in our congregation. And um, we want to pursue him, not just individually, but together. That's why we say we want to be a life-changing community, and he's the one that provides the life change for us as we grow together. Uh, we're in a series right now of messages over the New Testament book of Acts, and this morning we're going to look at this word community. Today's community is all about community. Uh, after our services, uh, we're going to be having a community lunch just right out these doors and to the right, and so if, you know, the, 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 the aroma of grilled meat kind of makes its way through these vents, you know, um, I'm, I may be the first to leave. So, um, but uh, we're just glad you're here, and we hope that you can stick around uh, for lunch with us. And um, those of you uh, who would call Windsor Road your home, uh, please, uh, you know, do your best not only to sit with you know, your loved ones, but also meet some new folks. And let's use this time as an opportunity for us to uh, uh, have some family time and get to know each other. It's a large church, uh, so it, it's hard for a thousand people to know everybody at the same time, but we can make connections, and so we want to do that this morning. Our scripture this morning deals with community. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at the entire chapter today, but I want to read verses 32 to 37, Acts 4, 32 to 37, because they give us a picture of community, a picture of authentic community. You'll find that on page 912 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of uh, the Bible to call your own, please feel free to take uh, the one that's in the pouch in front of you. And uh, let's take a look at this picture of authentic community, Christ-saturated community in Acts 4, 32 to 37. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. What a picture this is of what church is to be about. Unity and sharing and authentic relationships based on biblical truth. Did you get that? The resurrection of Jesus. And then there's this phrase, Great grace was upon them all. Great grace, not puny grace, not drop by drop grace. Great grace 
was upon them all. And out of this grace flowed an otherworldly generosity and sharing among God's people that just met needs with love and that allowed the church family to thrive. And there was nothing contrived about it. There was nothing forced about it. No guilt trips. There was just a loving unity, a kingdom perspective based on the truth of the resurrection, leading to great grace, leading to otherworldly generosity. And if that doesn't resonate with you, we don't have anything else to offer here. We don't. Because really, when you think about it, you're wired for community. And you're wired for relationships. And so if you had a fantastic Mother's Day last week, it's because you've been wired for community. And, and if you didn't have a fantastic Mother's Day, it's, it's because you that, that, that longing for it is because you're wired for it. So either our enjoyment of unity or our longing of unity are evidence that we're wired for unity. And so the question then is, how does something like this happen? Because I can tell you this, verses 32 to 37, there are seminars and books and lectures that preacher types like me get almost on a weekly basis inviting me to attend an event or read something or listen to something or consult with someone who will help produce this. And maybe you get them too. Let me save you a seminar. And it's not that those seminars would just be bad and boring. Of course not. But let me just save you a trip. Let's take this journey through Acts chapter 4 because, you see, these verses are the product or the produce of something that's happening. And what is that something, you know? You know this plus this plus this plus this equals verses 32 and 37. What's the this plus this plus this? Well, it's a journey that I would invite you to. A path to otherworldly, grace-saturated, authentic community. We want the destination. We're wired for the destination. What we don't always want is the path that takes us there. But we need to get there and go there if we're going to enjoy verses 32 to 37. So let's start. Let's actually start with Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, tells of the apostles Peter and John going up to the temple in Jerusalem. They went uh, for 3 p.m. prayer. And just outside the temple, they met a disabled man from birth. And the man asked for money. And Peter, typical preacher, he didn't have any. He told him that. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. He grabbed the guy by the hand. And I mean, this guy popped up on his feet. Now remember, he'd never been on his feet before, but he was doing cartwheels into the temple. And for the first time in this disabled man's life, he'd been inside the temple. 
For all of his life, he'd been outside. But for the first time, he was inside at 40 years of age. And the people who for 40 years passed him by were amazed at this miracle. And that's when Peter started his sermon in Acts chapter 3, verse 12. And he proclaimed Christ. This Jesus, Peter said, this Jesus. And he calls this Jesus God's servant. He calls this Jesus the holy and righteous one. He calls this Jesus the author of life, the seed of Abraham. This Jesus whom you killed, God raised. Peter preached Christ crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended. And he gets to verse 19. He says, therefore, repent. And that's the first stop on this path to authentic community. We'll just call it personal change. Personal change, repentance. Repentance is about personal change. Repentance is a turning from and a turning to. Repentance is about accepting personal responsibility. Repentance is about voluntarily submitting to any and all changes that God wants to make in my life. Repentance begins with me. Personal change begins with me. Authentic community. Well, it starts with my heart and where I am. I want you to think about what I just said here. Because some of you are not experiencing the kind of community and authentic relationships that you're wired for and that you long for. The kind that we see in, verse, in verses 32 to 37. And if you're not experiencing that, there's going to be a temptation to assume that the reason why you're not experiencing that exists outside yourself. And if only people or circumstances or situations would change outside yourself, well, then things would be better. I'm not so sure. Uh, the world wants us to think that. And so we'll hear, we'll hear Johnny Cash sing a song. What's the song? Uh, it's Man in Black, right? What, it's a song about why he wears black all the time. I mean, it doesn't take very long to get dressed in the morning because he just has one color. And the song is about why. You know why? He says, because this world's, you know, broken and People are starving, and folks are not employed, and there's bad things happening, and this, and, and, he's, and it is broken. People are poor. Bad things are happening. And that's why he's wearing black. But then he says this in the song. He says this. He says, if y'all just get your act together, then I'll change my clothes. Okay? Well, I don't think he ever did, right? Because when that's your posture, when that's your attitude, if you just get your act together, see, then I'll change my clothes. And, well, let's move on. <laughs> Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp had written an excellent book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And a powerful line in their book is this. 
The fatal flaw of human wisdom is that it promises that you can change your relationships without needing to change yourself. And that's what we're finding here in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent. See, Acts 3, 19, you know, confronts the, the, the ideology behind Johnny Cash's man in black. Because Christianity teaches that, you know, repentance starts with my heart. And it's not just a one-time act. It is it's a lifetime perspective. It's part of what it means to possess a kingdom perspective. Uh, 500 years ago, this fall, a pastor by the name of Martin Luther was so frustrated with the church that he takes a piece of paper, and on it were written 95 statements. It's called the 95 Theses. And historians say it really kind of launched what's been called the Protestant Reformation. And the very first thesis are these words. They deal with repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So repentance is a lifetime experience, not a one-time event. Because, you see, something has to break my primary addiction to my own power and my false program for happiness. And, and so the thing that obstructs my willingness to repent is my ego. Because my ego says, I want to have power, so I'm going to take control because I want to always be right. And see, I am powerful. And that vicious cycle of the will to power does not create happy people nor happy people around them. And if you want Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, you, it's not going to exist without Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Personal change, repentance. And that's what Peter's getting at in these verses he can, and, and his whole point is that God sent his son not to condemn you, but to bless you. Chapter 3, verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And when Peter concluded his message there, 5,000 people said yes to Christ. 5,000 said, yes, I want to submit voluntarily to any and all changes God wants to make. And, and in the middle of that celebration, that's when the religious enemies barged in. They arrested Peter and John and held them in custody overnight. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men, this is just men, came to about 5,000. So you've got thousands and thousands of, of believers who they don't have a campus uh, like ours. I mean, they're in the temple in Jerusalem, and they're gathering, and they're, they're uh, growing in Christ, and they're hearing about Jesus. But not everybody's celebrating, which takes us to this next stop on the path to authentic community. 
in verses 32 to 37. It's not just a matter of personal change. What's required is also a holy boldness because many times doing God's will will take you into the teeth of hostility. The fact is the world will tolerate the church if the church cooperates with what the world wants. The world, likes a, the world likes a church that says maybe. The world likes a church that says perhaps. The world likes a qualifying church. And you know, when the world starts saying, we really like your brand of Christianity, alarm bells ought to go off. Because the gospel upsets the power structures of the world. The gospel turns it on its head. The gospel says that the greatest are going to be the least. The gospel says that the last are going to be the first. The gospel says that if you want your life, you've got to surrender your life. If you want to live, you have to die. And that's the gospel. And not everybody goes for that. And in fact, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world who are experiencing the stress and the suffering that Peter and John have and the disciples will face as the book of Acts progresses. I'm thinking of the article that I read last week in the paper uh, titled, Christians in an Epical Shift Are Leaving the Middle East. And it tells how civil war and extremism have driven Christians away, deepening the dominance of Islam. The, ar the article goes on to say that uh, for instance, in the year 1910, 13.6% of the population in the Middle East were Christian. Today, that number is 4.2%. And by the year 2025, it's only eight years from now, it's projected to be at 3%. Christians are, I mean, they're fleeing. And the article had pictures uh, Here's a picture behind me of a, a burned-out main sanctuary in Iraq. Can you imagine coming in here and, I mean, what you see is not paint but just charred remains of what had been a war zone? Uh, uh, the next picture is of a, a Christian militiaman who is there to guard the worshipers. Can you imagine? Can you imagine uh, entering the front doors and you're not greeted by our guest services team, but you're greeted by militia with guns who are there to protect us as we worship. Here's a picture of a father and a son. Um, uh, this family had returned to Egypt this, just this spring. And they returned to their hometown, and in their hometown was their home church. And their family had been baptized in this church, and uh, family members had been married in this church. And the father and the son sat in the front pews because they wanted a good view of the altar. And, you know, it was a familiar church, a familiar place, of familiar memories with familiar family. And that was when the suicide bomber detonated his vest. And the explosion mangled those front pews, killing the father instantly. His son was saved because the father shielded his boy. 11 years old. The boy survived with shrapnel wounds to his face and leg. 
That's, what, that's what's going on in our world today. The Apostle Peter says later in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 14, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do you hear his kingdom perspective? Don't be surprised by this. You're doing the will of God. You're facing hostility. Don't be surprised by this. So the question, well, God, why is this happening? Peter doesn't even go there. He says, don't be surprised when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then Peter says this, 1 Peter 4, 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are bl So one of the purposes of our gathering here is for us to suffer for good reasons and not for bad reasons. And suffering for insult because of Christ is a blessed reason to, to suffer. Because it means that the spirit of glory and of power and of God rests upon you. And that was true then, it's true now. And you see, the book of Acts, remember, was originally addressed to someone. It's Theophilus, right? Luke and Acts. Theophilus. So I'm wondering, is Theophilus feeling the heat from his culture? What's Luke teaching Theophilus that would help embolden Theophilus' faith and confidence in Christ? Where have you felt hostility for your faith? Has it been where you work? Has it been in your neighborhood? Has it been among your family? Where has that been? And how is this helping you understand that you're blessed when you're insulted for Christ? If we're looking for the kind of community that we all say we want in Acts chapter 4, we have to come to grips with the truth that not everybody wants us to have it. We have to come to grips with the truth that, that in this world you will have trouble. We have to come to grips with the truth that Christ has overcome the world. And we have to understand that relentless unity originates from heaven, not from earth. And it's going to happen because we have chosen to walk through a fiery trial together in the name of Christ so that the spirit of glory and power would rest upon us. So Peter and John, I mean, they're standing before the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body there in Israel. And these are the same enemies that condemned Christ only months ago. Same people. They wanted Jesus dead then. And it's not dangerous to heal a disabled man. What's dangerous is to claim that the very person who was executed as a false messiah was in fact God's messiah. And so the Sanhedrin sets Peter and John in their midst. Verse 7, when they set them in the midst. So picture Peter and John in, you know, in, a, in the middle of a semicircle and the leaders are around them. And they asked them, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, what kind of a question is that? They're leaders. They're the pastors. It's their job to be the spiritual shepherds of Israel. They, they've witnessed this miracle. They know who this crippled guy was. They know how long he'd been disabled. And they knew Peter and John. Familiar faces, and yet they can't figure this out. Are they so religiously dull and spiritually numb that they cannot see an act of God staring them in the face? 
Is it possible for religious leaders, for professionals, pastor types like myself, to be so entrenched in religious institutionalism that we're blind to God's dealings? All we're concerned about are reputation, names, authority. Who gave you the authority to do this? Whose name? Whose power? We want names. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people of the rulers of the people and the elders, if we're examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, verse 9. Peter says, if you want to know how this good deed happened, and make no mistake, you have arrested us, deprived us of our freedom, and held us in custody because of a good deed. You want to know who's responsible for this? And then Peter just lights it up, man. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Jesus you arrested, the Jesus you wrongly convicted, the Jesus you unjustly had crucified, the Jesus who died but whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is how that man standing there is in full health. And then verse 12 climaxes this sermon And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no maybe to that, is there? And that's what makes it so highly offensive to our politically correct, pluralistic culture. We're going to be praying over our seniors here a little later on, and we're sending them into a world that is highly politically correct and highly pluralistic, and to claim that God has revealed himself exclusively in Christ. Our culture, our culture just says, well, you're just intolerant. You're just full of hate. But our culture says that because it assumes that only Christianity makes exclusive claims. You see, our our secular world wants to put all religions in a box by saying things like, well, all religions are the same. They just have different paths to getting there. You know, everybody wants to get to the top of the mountain. They just want to go up different paths there. You know, The, the, the meaning is the same, but the machinery is what's different. Same meaning, different machinery. Same meaning, different machinery. And I beg to differ. Because actually, it's the opposite when you really think about it. You see, religious faiths possess much similar machinery. I mean, think about it. Islam has clergy. Christianity has clergy. You know, uh, Buddhism has sacred texts. Christianity has sacred texts. Hinduism has worship gatherings. We have worship gatherings. They have holy days. We have holy days. It's the same machinery. But it's the meaning. The meaning that matters. It's the meaning that's different. And Christianity's meaning is unique and particular. You want to know what it is? Here it is. God, man, Christ, respond. There it is. God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God saw that it was good. And then mankind, the man and the woman in the garden, committed cosmic treason by choosing to trust the evil one over the Lord God. And that's why our world is in a mess. But God so loved the world that he sent his son, his holy and righteous one, the seed of Abraham, the author of life, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to repair the brokenness of our world by becoming broken for us. And now we respond 
by faith and trust in him. So the question isn't, how can you be so intolerant? The question concerning verse 12 is, what would convince me of this? There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What would convince me of this? And we already know because in Peter's message here and in the messages all throughout the book of Acts, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity rises or falls on the literal, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you don't believe the resurrection, you have to explain the fact of Jesus' death on the cross. If you don't believe the resurrection, you have to explain the fact of knowing where the exact location of Jesus' tomb was, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. If you don't believe the resurrection, you have to explain the fact of the empty tomb, that on the third day the tomb was empty. There was no corpse. Jesus' body was not there. If you don't believe the resurrection, you have to explain the many, 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 many testimonies by those who claim they saw Jesus Christ of Nazareth alive and well in a body. And if you don't believe the resurrection, you've got to explain the changed lives like Peter's. <laughs> the one who denied him three times. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And then they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So do you want to know how a church becomes unified and fearless? There's a boldness and quality of life that comes from those who've been with Jesus. Think about how powerful that statement is. And then they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Why do you act the way you act? Why do you talk the way you talk? Why do you treat people at work or in your family the way you do? Why is your work ethic what it is? You know, when they see your excellence and your quality of life and your otherworldly countenance and your temperament, you know, they go, why is that? Oh, now we know. She's been with Jesus. She's been with Jesus. Kyle Ramage graduated from seminary a few years ago. But he, the Lord did not put him in a local church. With a seminary degree, Kyle Ramage went into the coffee business. And this year, he took first place at the, uh, the 2017 United States Barista Championship, which is kind of like you know, the Super Bowl of, of you know, of baristas. Kyle writes, I believe that at the core that the world is organized to give glory to God. And our work is part of that. And so your work should feel like an act of worship. But deep down at your heart, that's what matters. And, and sometimes your work is terrible and the pay is awful and the people are frustrating and if in that setting you're able to respond in kindness and love and support for your coworkers and, and your customers and your boss, that's what's going to differentiate you. Make people question, this guy is weird. What's wrong with him? Why is he so kind or loving or giving? He doesn't owe those people anything. And that's the way that you break in to spiritual conversations. And those kinds of conversations are where you start to change people's minds about what it 
means to be a Christian. And they'll see something's different about you because you've been with Jesus. The gospel is not do more, try harder. The gospel is they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. Well, I mean, the leaders don't know what to do. Verse 16, what shall we do with these men? We don't know. What, you're the leaders. You don't know what to do. Peter and John know what to do. The Sanhedrin's frustrated. Peter and John are fearless. And finally, the Sanhedrin says, well, you can't teach in the name of Jesus. And we mean it. And Peter says, we have absolutely no intention of complying with what you're saying. You're judges, so you do some judging here. If it comes to obeying God or obeying man, you do the math. And the leaders, the leaders let him go anyway. You know why? Because the people believed the miracle. And the leaders had to give the people the impression that they were acting on their behalf. So they let him go. And Peter and John march out in freedom. And they go back and they tell their story. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And that leads to yet another milestone on this path personal change holy boldness fearless truth in the resurrection of christ that leads to prayer you see that they get back together after this and and you know they don't they don't huddle up and do a strategy session what do they do they have a prayer meeting and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what we see here in Acts chapter 4 is fulfilled prophecy from Psalm 2. That's the psalm that they're praying there. And what we learn there is that the Gentiles and the peoples and the kings and the rulers turn out to be an unholy, sinister conspiracy between Pilate and Herod and the Romans and, yes, even the people of Israel, for all have sinned against the Lord's Holy One. But notice this about their prayer. Did you see this? What did they pray about? They, they, they did not pray that God would protect them. They didn't. They didn't pray for a shield of protection. They didn't pray for a hedge of protection. I'm going to need more than a hedge if someone's coming after me. They don't even pray for that. You know what they pray for? They pray for more holy boldness. That's what they pray for. <laughs> Verse 29, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God, you will do the speaking, you do the healing. We'll do the proclaiming, you do the signs and wonders through your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed that prayer, I'm telling you, the place shakes. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness you know peter says there's there's nothing you can do to me to live as christ to die is gain so you, you know speaking out for jesus is only a risk if you feel like you have something to lose peter says what do i have to lose i'm not i can't lose 
because Jesus has won for me. And so personal change, holy boldness, fearless truth, spirit-dependent prayer. Church, that's what leads to verses 32 to 37. That's what takes, that's the path. And there's no other path. There really isn't. When holy boldness and fearless truth offer fervent prayer to the sovereign God, his spirit makes us one. And that oneness is relentless. That unity is fearless. It's truth-based. It's spirit-led. And those things were supposed to be happening in the temple in Jerusalem. But instead, it was very vivid in the temple of the spirit-filled church of the living, resurrected King Jesus. You see, this chapter is about two temples, two, two leaderships, two choices. You know, the temple of Jerusalem or the temple of the church, the, the Sanhedrin or the apostles, and one group leads by law and the other leads by love. One leads by ego, the other leads by the spirit. One leads by fear, the other leads by grace. Verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. Now I want to go to that temple. I want to belong to that church. Grace that transcends my abilities. Grace that transforms my inabilities. Grace that turns your worst enemy into your best friend. Grace that takes people as they are and makes them what they can be. Grace that resurrects dead relationships. Grace that ennobles, grace that empowers, grace that forgives, grace that frees, grace that transforms, grace that transcends. Grace that turns cowards into proclaimers, grace that turns pride into humility, grace that turns anger into awe and resentment into rest. Grace that turns me from the fear of losing it all into someone who risks because he doesn't have anything to lose at all. Grace. Grace that gives hope and grace that gives community. I want to go to that church, don't you? You know what? I think I already do. Amen. Amen. Yeah. No. I, when I see... When I see your grace, when I see your prayers, when I see your interaction, when I see the foyer with little groups of people, heads bowed, hands held in prayer, when I see, when I see the church family gather out here with these tables and, and we don't have people sitting all by themselves, but we've got them you know, included with a group, when I see that, when I hear stories of you you know, you just, you feel like quitting, but, you know, you're just, you're just asking God for today's daily bread. I just need today's bread, and I'm going to sleep tonight like you're sovereign, and then, then we're going to take it one day at a time. When I, when I hear those stories and see that, oh, man, that's, that's 33. Great grace was upon them all. And that doesn't happen by ourselves. It happens in community. Grace creates community. I close with Eugene Peterson's quote. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and an embrace of 
community. I am not myself by myself. 